We'll begin with prayer. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So would your word pierce and also would it heal? Would it bring comfort as we look to the word that became flesh and dwelt among us? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1954, Samuel Beckett wrote a play called Waiting for Godot, G-O-D-O-T. And the play is really quite simple. There's only one set and only five characters. The two main characters are on the same set every scene, and they sit by a tree waiting for Godot to arrive. They converse back and forth. A master and slave come by across the set, and at the end of the day, a messenger arrives and says, Godot's not coming today, but he's going to come tomorrow. And the first scene ends. Well, the men decide the next day that they're going to wait there, and it arrives the next day, and their conversations continue again. The master and slave come back across the stage, but now one of them is blind and the other is dumb. And they swear, we've never met you before, to the two men. And after they leave, the messenger boy comes back again and he says, Godot's not coming today, but he's going to come tomorrow. And after the boy leaves, the men consider hanging themselves. The life is meaningless. We're just waiting here for Godot to show up and he's never going to come, but alas... Even the chance to end their life, their rope is too short. They would love to flee, but they feel compelled to wait for Godot. But then they say, we'll leave, but they do nothing, and the final curtain drops. Well, the play has been interpreted many ways, but many illusions point to the fact that they're waiting for God, who never really plans to come or do anything. And since he doesn't come, and he won't come, life seems hopeless, Pitiful, painful, filled with empty longing. All you can do is sit around and wait and wait, but it's really just empty and depressing too. You know, waiting. We don't like it, and as a culture, we like everything to come rapidly. I was reflecting, I have many years to reflect now, reflecting back on prior Christmases, and I remember being a young child, and in the mail, the older people can relate, would come the catalogs. You could look through the Sears catalog, the J.C. Penney's catalog, because that's how you knew what you could get for Christmas. Then you would fill out the form with all the numbers, and you would mail it in, and then back would come weeks later the presents you wanted. Or you could go to Black Friday, the only time you could get those sales. But now, what do we do? We wake up in our pajamas and we go, Ah! I haven't got a Christmas present. You flip on Amazon, dot, dot, dot. Oh, it'll be here tomorrow. Great. I can sleep a little longer. Yeah, we want things now. We want them instantly. Keith mentioned earlier the missionaries we support. And I remember growing up and the missionaries we'd send out over to Africa. And we would not hear back for months. He eventually would return with his family and they would set up a projector with little pictures that they would shoot a camera through and shine it on the screen. And that's how we'd interact with them. And now, what do we do? We sit here with a live camera feed and we talk instantaneously to our missionary. You know, in the past, you'd send a letter. You might wake, wait weeks. Did they get it? They think about it. They reply. Now, we have electronic messaging. Even yet, that's old. You know, when that was new, what we do? We'd sit there as our phone lines would go, wah, 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 wah. 
and it'd beep and wow, it's coming so quick. And the email would slowly start filling on your page and we're like, wow, this is so fast. And then you could instant message from your computer and now you can be in your car and the other, hopefully the other person's driving. You can video chat with people around the world. You know, we don't like to wait. And we have been waiting. I'm sure the children especially have been waiting for Christmas. And we don't like to wait. You know, maybe you're waiting in the hospital in that waiting room and you're there forever. Or you might be waiting for the test results after you have it. Or you might be waiting for some resolution in your relationships. You might be waiting for the sermon to get over so you can go to the next thing on your schedule. And yet people have been waiting for over 2,000 years for Christmas. And this morning we read of a man and a woman who waited almost their entire lives for the birth of Christ. This morning, if you have a bulletin, there's a short, simple outline. We're going to first look at verses 21 through 35. Simeon waiting for the comforter. And then in the last few verses, 36 through 38, Anna waiting for the Redeemer. And our story begins. We'll read the first part of it. Luke 2, 21 through 24. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So our story begins, Mary and Joseph, they're very faithful Jews. Jesus has been born. They take him to be circumcised. They obey the angelic messenger. They name him Jesus. And they come to consecrate Jesus, and they give the offering of two young birds for their sacrifice. Now, this is interesting, because if you read the Old Testament, the sacrifice is actually supposed to be a bird and a lamb. But they give two birds because the law of Lord afforded the possibility for people who are too poor to give a lamb to give two birds instead. In other words, Joseph and Mary were very poor. This is a reminder as we watch Christmas movies, as we see Christmas scenes, manger scenes, we have to take everything we sing, everything we see, and line it up with Scripture. Because while often we'll see a manger scene with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, the shepherds behind them, and then the Magi, most likely the Magi have not yet come. And I say that because if they'd come bringing their gold, frankincense and myrrh, they would have had gold by which they could buy the lamb. They're so poor, they can only have two birds. But back to the story. We see now these amazing events. And while we marvel at these events, you have to consider on that day, it was probably, for most people, just like any other day in the temple. People coming in and out doing sacrifices, people bringing in their children to be consecrated. And most people see Jesus and they don't even look at him again. Just another child going in and out, except one man we're given more information about. We read that in verse 25. We'll read the next section. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, 
to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So while most people are going in and out and not noticing this child, one person, Simeon, sees Jesus and sees something different. You know, if this were a movie, the main camera would be on Joseph and Mary as they walk in, and then in the distance you would see this man, and the camera would zoom in on this man. And then the camera would fade to show you they're going to give you background information. And Luke gives us four background information facts about Simeon's life. First, we would see scenes of Simeon leading a righteous life. Not scenes of him being perfect, but living a life in line with God's requirements. Scenes of him obeying the commands of God and the heart behind those commands. Justice, mercy, and walking humbly with his God. The scenes would then shift to show Simeon and his devotion and dedication and religious duties. It would depict him gathering on the Sabbath to worship, offering prayers, performing sacrifices. Third, we'd see scenes of him praying with hope that God would bring, as it says here, the consolation, or that means the comfort of Israel. We'd see him encouraging other faithful Jews, look, don't be discouraged. Yes, the Romans are here. We are occupied But the Comforter will come. God's promises will come to pass. And then fourth, we'd be shown scenes of Simeon being filled with God's Spirit, being given a revelation that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. And this would have been an amazing promise because all faithful Jews wanted the Messiah to come. And Simeon was promised to meet him. And yet you have to wonder, as days became years from this revelation, and years became decades, if Simeon didn't start to go, I've been waiting a long time. Was that Jerusalem pizza that made me see that revelation, or was that real? Did did I really get told I was going to see the Messiah? Well, the movie, so to speak, would then refade, having given us all this background information about Simeon, and we turn to the present day Simeon he sees Joseph and Mary and in joy he goes up and he takes the child Jesus in his arms and he blesses God now we're not told that Simeon was his priest and we're not a priest we're not even told that he has a role in the temple so Mary and Joseph were probably a little startled as he took up the child in his arms and then we're told they marveled at the things Simeon said over their child And Simeon begins by praising God that his promise to see the Messiah had been fulfilled. And so he says, God, now I can leave this world in peace. Simeon had looked forward to God's promises coming true. And now that his promise to see the Messiah has come, his journey can be done. Now in reading this true story, we have to remember the bigger picture. And that is, Luke wrote his gospel, you can read in Luke 1, 1 through 4, to a man named Theophilus. Because he wanted Theophilus and us to know the reality, the certainty of the things concerning who Jesus is and what he did. You know, this fulfilled promise to 
Simeon, years before he now fulfilled, demonstrates again that God always keeps his word. Just like earlier in Luke, the promise to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, the promises to Elizabeth, the promises to Mary, which had come true. Now Simeon has had God's word fulfilled in his life. Thus, Theophilus and we can know and trust God's word that his promises, his statements will come true. Unlike waiting for Godot, for the person who will never show up, God keeps his word. He shows up. And then notice what he says in verse 30. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Notice he didn't say, my eyes have seen the things I've done to attain salvation. You know, we were told of how wonderful Simeon was. He's religious, he's faithful, he's prayerful, he is expecting God's promises to come true. But he doesn't look at any of that, that's my salvation. He sees Jesus and he goes, here is your salvation. Salvation is the baby in his hands. Not his spiritual journey, not his growth, not anything he does. You know, many people, even many professing Christians, feel like they're on a spiritual journey. They're searching. They're always going. And even sometimes churches say, we're here to help you in your next portion of your spiritual journey. Well, this may be audacious, but it's what the Bible says. Your spiritual journey stops with Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. Yes, you can grow in him. You should delight in him more each day. But Jesus is the end of the journey. He is God's salvation. And notice what Simeon declares next. For he declares that Jesus did not come and do this secretly. Verse 31, he'll be prepared before the presence of all people. You know, Jesus didn't go be born in some secret place and then live a life of secrecy so that people would have to guess. No, he lived publicly performing miracles and doing God's actions so that people would know that he is the Messiah, the light for Jew and Gentile. Revelation to the Gentiles that they did not have an extra light of glory to the Jews, so that Jesus could say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Simeon looked forward to the comfort of Israel. Comfort that we just saw, came in God who became man, Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is the light of the world and the light of life. So where is your life darkened right now? now Keith and I were talking recently and we're noting how in our church we've seen a lot of sorrow over the last year and a half. Now it's always dangerous to begin a comparison game. Oh man, we have it worse than so and so because... We can always make things in our favor. Yet, without being comparing to other people, we can realize there have been some very heavy, very discomforting burdens in the life of our church. In the last year or so, Danny McClung and Stan Sybeck both died unexpectedly. Children have rebelled and left home. The Songers, Gavin, finished their service or they were transferred. The Martins' health has declined, so they're mostly housebound. We've had divorces, several car caches. We've had broken relationships. Emily's currently going through her horrendous bout with seizures. 
And we could add other recent decisions by friends and family members that are discouraging. We could add co-workers, family, friends. We know the discomforts and sorrows of life. And we don't need to hide from that. I say that because sometimes well-meaning Christians will begin a service by saying something like this. They'll say, you know, we're all burdened. Let's take all of our cares and burdens for the next hour. Let's just set those aside and focus on worshiping God. Except I think we need to do something else. We don't come this morning to forget or set aside the discomforts of life. We come to face them in light of the birth of Christ. You may be thinking, I think Jeremy missed the memo. This was supposed to be a joyful Christmas service. We're here to rejoice. This is more of a Debbie Downer sermon. You know, life's sorrowful, horrible. Well, yes, but we don't get excited about declarations of peace unless we know that there is a war. Hope doesn't seem so hopeful if we haven't despaired. And I think this is really important to realize because sometimes we give the impression that the normal Christian life is one that should always be joyful, happy, and on some level, easy. But as I've pastored or cared for people, whether in college ministry or pastors, as a pastor for the last 18 years, I can honestly say I can't think of a single person who had everything going well in their life. People often present themselves at church, oh yeah, everything is going great, but behind the scenes, so to speak, of their lives, everyone has troubles and trials. And it's not just the lives I know, it's rather interesting. If you look at the Psalms, the most common category of Psalms is lament. Yes, Jesus went to weddings, he went to parties, and so there was some basis, though it wasn't true, for accusing him of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Yet what is he described as in Isaiah 53? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Thus, as we gather for Christ's birth, we don't set aside our sorrows. We don't lay aside our burdens. Rather, like Simeon, we face them in the light of the birth of Christ. It's as we see him as the Savior, as the light of the world, that we find comfort even in the midst of the trials and burdens. And I think this is important to realize because sometimes, on top of all that discouragement and sadness, we then have this feeling, but... I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be joyful. It's Christmas Day. I'm supposed to be happy. And yet, truth be told, I'm irritable. I'm grouchy. I'm depressed about my life. Then we beat ourselves up wondering, well, why am I not joyful? I'm a bad Christian along with all of this other stuff. Yes, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. But listen to these words from Paul. In light of the fact that so many Israelites were not saved, he said in Romans 9-2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Due to the situation in Corinth and how that church was going, he writes, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. This is not just so-called spiritual sorrow. He had a friend, Epaphroditus, who became very sick, and he wrote about it later in Philippians 2, 27. He says, Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow 
upon sorrow. And sometimes it's just the events and circumstances of life that in and of themselves are sorrowful. Thus, the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2.19, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Therefore, on Christmas, we don't come to drown our sorrows away in drink, in food, in gifts. We don't try to hide from them with diversions or constant activity. No, at Christmas, we face them in the light of the birth of Christ. You know, it's interesting, I don't know what happened all around the U.S. in regards to COVID two years ago, but here in Wichita Falls, we shut everything down except seven businesses. You might be surprised to know churches weren't one of the seven essential things, but what was one of the seven? Alcohol stores were allowed to stay open. We need our comfort. How are we going to make it through life if we don't have our alcohol? And yet that is not a lasting comfort. At Christmas, we face the sorrows of life, but we face them in the light of the birth of Christ. About 400 years ago, Christians tried to encapsulate the Christian faith, and they wanted to pass it on to others. So they made this question in answer format. They call it a catechism. And their first question began like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? You know, how would you answer that? Someone comes to you, you know, where do you find comfort in this life? Well, they answered it this way. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Since all of that is true, then we can have lasting, confident, and secure comfort. Not comfort that lasts until the alcohol wears off. Not comfort until the buzz ends or the activity stops. No true, lasting comfort for each hour, for each second of life. Do you know that comfort? Do you have comfort in Christ even in the trials? Simeon found that comfort because God came in the flesh in Jesus Christ. The wait was over and life was not meaningless or hopeless. But it wasn't just Simeon who was waiting for Jesus though. We read in the next few verses, 36 through 38, of a woman named Anna who was also waiting, waiting for Jesus. Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So now a new character is added to the story, and this time it's a woman prophet, a prophetess named Anna. She was married seven years, but then since that time has been a widow until now age 84. 
Now, at that time, we may think this is odd, but at that time, girls normally married from ages 13 to 15. So even if she was on the latter side of that, she has now, for over six decades, 60 years, been waiting for the redemption of Israel. And in this waiting, she devoted herself to serving God at the temple. She fasted and prayed there so frequently, it says she didn't leave. It says we will sometimes say today, oh, they're there at the church every time the doors are open. She was devoted to God. Now, before going into what she says about Jesus, let's again take a bird's eye view of what is Luke doing here? He wants people, specifically Theophilus, to know the reality of these events. And in their culture, what do they need to show the veracity of something? They needed at least two witnesses. And Luke shows not just two witnesses, but multiple witnesses about who this baby is. As you read through Luke's gospel, we read through it last night, read through part of it this morning, we've seen angels, we've seen shepherds, we've now seen a pious man and a pious woman, all speaking to who this baby is and what he will do. In other words, this is not just the testimony of people who after Jesus died and rose again saying, you know what, this is what we want Jesus to be. This is how we're going to interpret his life. No, this is people before Jesus was born, at his birth, and soon after his birth, declaring this is who he is and this is what he will do. And so Luke is showing us all types of beings. Beings who are rural, like shepherds. Beings that are urban, like Luke, like Simeon and Anna. Beings that are male, female, angelic, human, heavenly, earthly. All types of beings from all different angles declaring who Jesus is and what he will do. And this explains why Luke develops the character of Simeon and Anna. As you know, court cases, if you have a witness who's really going to hurt your side, what do you often try and do? You try to attack the character of the witness. You try to undermine who they are. That way you could say, look, their witness isn't even valid. They're such a horrible character. And yet Luke shows that Simeon and Anna were ideal Jews. These were people who were longing for the Messiah. And these witnesses can be trusted, Luke is showing us. And all of this builds up to Anna seeing Jesus and giving thanks, we're told in verse 38, because of the child. And why? Because she was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem here is being used the way that we might speak of Hollywood or D.C. We might say, oh, D.C. is so corrupt. But we're not talking about the place as though if you go to Washington, D.C., the dirt is corrupt or the trees or immoral or anything like that. We're referring to it for the people. So when it says the redemption of Jerusalem, it's talking about the people in Jerusalem. It's shorthand for Israel. Well, what does she mean by the redemption of it? Well, we've looked at this beautiful word in Ephesians 1.7 where it says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Your redemption is a term from the marketplace referring to buying something back. It refers to a payment, a ransom, so that one is released from captivity. That captivity could be physical, like you're enslaved, you're a slave. It could be financial, you're captive to your debts. 
or it could be to some other obligation. And the Bible is clear, though we may think, well, I don't owe anyone anything. We all owe God because of our sins. That's why it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You know, since God made us as our creator, he has the right to tell us how to live. And any time we break the way he tells us how to live, we are in debt to him. Our debt is our sin. And yet we have redemption, it tells us, through his blood. Jesus had to give his life so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be forgiven. No amount of money, treasure, or promises could secure our redemption. Only the blood of Jesus could atone for and pay our debt before God. And yet, Jesus could not pay the price if he had no hands for the nails to pierce. Jesus would not have been able to restore his kingdom if he did not have a head to first wear a crown of thorns. Jesus' blood would not have been spilt if he did not have a back to take the whips or a side to be pierced. You see, Christmas brings comfort and joy because Christmas is about the Redeemer who went through agony and sorrow. We have good cheer because he became God's cursed. We have peace because he took God's wrath. And none of this would have happened without the birth of Christ. If Jesus were not fully man and also fully God, then he would not have been able to fix our deepest issue. But in Bethlehem, Jesus was born fully man, fully God, so he could take care of our deepest problem. So what is the deepest problem with us, with this world? Well, the Bible refers to it as sin. Now, when the Bible says that, it doesn't mean merely, well, okay, this morning they asked me how the eggs tasted, and I said good, but I actually thought they were horrible. I didn't want to lie, and I kind of told a lie because I didn't want them to feel bad. It's not talking about things like that. Yes, that is sin, but it's talking about the deeper issues of sin, that sin is a power in us. Sin brought curse, a curse on this world, so that death and destruction have entered into and ruined everything. And to truly understand this world, you have to know that the ultimate problem is that sin cursed it. Thus, the ultimate solution must fix that problem, and Jesus came to do that. Jesus came in the flesh to restore and redeem not just individuals, but this entire broken universe. And Jesus showed this in his life, because he didn't just come and preach forgiveness of sins, which he did do. He also healed the sick. He calmed the storms. He cast out demons. He reconciled enemies. He resurrected the dead. Jesus, by his blood, paid the penalty so that the curse of sin would be paid for. That's why Jesus told his disciples in Mark 10:45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many, Jesus came in the flesh so that the ransom price, price could be paid. Now, all suffering obviously has not yet been removed. But when Jesus returns, he will finally and totally return the world to the way it should be. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 20 through 22, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So it's on the one hand, the wait for Jesus is over. And on the other hand, we eagerly wait for him to return. And Anna, we're being told here in Luke chapter 2, sees him as the Redeemer. But notice that it says, She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. God has sent the Redeemer, and this overflows in thanksgiving on her lips. And the conversation doesn't just stay between her and God, but then she talks to others who are also waiting for the Redeemer. The Redeemer brings such joy that it overflows, whether that's the shepherds who go to Bethlehem, or Simeon, or Anna, or Zechariah, or others who want to share the news with others. So Simeon and Anna had waited and waited and waited for their comfort, for their Redeemer, and finally the day long anticipated came. Yet as we noted, for most people that day, it was just like any other day in the temple. People streamed in and out, sacrifices, prayers, offerings. And yet some saw who Jesus really was. People all saw the child, but they responded in various ways. And likewise today, as we look back and remember the coming of Jesus, there's various responses. Around the world, many people, even people who have no claim to be a Christian, will celebrate Christmas. It's a time in their mind for gathering a family, the giving of presents, and enjoying the generic Christmas spirit of sharing and goodwill. Many will gather in churches or gathered last night. They'll sing the songs, but they miss the whole thing. They don't understand what Christmas is all about. And yet others come and realize that their deepest desire... Their greatest expectation has come in the birth of Christ. Yes, we do now wait for Jesus to return, but we know that the Messiah has come. Thus, even in the midst of the calamities and the crises of life, we have comfort for Jesus has come. Even in the midst of our brokenness, we know the Redeemer who shed his blood will make all things new. Simeon and Anna had long been waiting, anticipating, longing for the Messiah to come. And days, years, decades probably brought doubts and questions. You know, can there really be comfort? Can there be a Redeemer as those Roman soldiers stand in our city? And yet to their old age, they waited knowing that God's promises would come true. Their waiting found fulfillment on that day when Jesus came and their life was filled with joy and peace. It was very easy to despair at the suffering of our own lives and the world around us. And yet this has been true for Christians throughout time. You may have heard of Charles Jennings. He was born into wealth at 1700 in England. He attended Oxford and he was discouraged. He was disheartened by the influence of deism both within the church and the larger culture. You know, deism is the belief that God does exist. God created the world, but then he stood back and he let the laws that he made govern the universe. 
this fit well with enlightenment, rationalistic thinking that thought, look, we can figure out this world. We can solve everything with our own intellect. And yet deism implicitly at first and then explicitly later had to admit, look, what happened in the Bible isn't really true. We don't need salvation. Jesus wasn't really divine. His death didn't mean anything. And yet Jennings was committed to God and his word. And he was in despair as people became more and more influenced by these ideas. It was not just ideas, though, for his own brother became so depressed due to deistic ideas that he committed suicide. And in the midst of this discouraging situation, Jennings wrote words to be sung by a choir as a symphony played. And he sent the words to a friend to put them to music. The friend's name was Handel, and he entitled it Messiah. You may have heard of Handel's Messiah. It began in 1752, and it is still played in symphonies, even the best symphonies around the world to today. You're probably familiar with the ending. I won't sing it for you. The Hallelujah Chorus, where everyone stands as they sing. But it begins with these words. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Well, how could Jennings speak of comfort as his brother lay in the grave, and a culture lay rotting to horrible ideas. Because he knew God is not remote and far off. He knew that God had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there was comfort. There was hope. There was peace. Do you know this lasting comfort? Do you see the redemption the world will have? Jesus has come, and he offers peace, forgiveness, joy, and comfort, even in the midst of the trials, to all who come to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we give thanks that your Son came. Lord, a marvelous mystery, the incarnation that the Son of God took on flesh. Oh, Lord, what a joy it is to know that, to know you. So, Lord, as we sing our final song and go out this day. May we have joy in you, even as we remember the sufferings and burdens of this life. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.